Now, where were we? In the last episode, we recounted how LSD entered society. Albert Hoffman synthesized it in 1939, and once he did, he shelved it because it did not provide the efficacy for pain that he was looking for. Four years later, call it intuition or an educated guess or serendipity, he felt that he needed to research the shelved compound LSD-25. At this time, he accidentally ingested it. The Technicolor bicycle trip, revered by many, was the starting point. LSD became the tiger. Depending on who you asked at the time, it was the most regal animal, one that would tame the mind, provide self-introspection, and mystical experiences. Or, if you asked the other camp, it was a tiger waiting to pounce on its prey only to devour it piece by piece. So LSD was a hero and a villain at the same time. The perfect god, Janus. Let's take the regal view of this tiger first. Hoffman came back from his trip with a renewed love for and connection with the beauty around him. And he wasn't alone. Sandoz had no clue what was happening and how this compound should be employed. It was the days of the wild, wild west. Molecules went from discovery to clinical studies in just two years. But in LSD's case, it went from the vial straight to the mouth. Sandoz shipped these drugs to anyone with even a whisper of an idea wanting to test it in a clinical setting. It quickly entered widespread psychiatric use even before it was known what LSD would be used for. Osman and some of his contemporaries used it in an attempt to treat alcoholism. But at the same time, the same way that mescaline was willingly provided to Huxley, they freely distributed LSD for clinical experimental use. We can argue about whether Osman and his colleagues were right or wrong, or acted responsibly or irresponsibly. We could ask if a drug, just because it provided an experience different from the existing psychiatric practices of the time, should be given out like candy. But I think we'll steer clear of passing judgment. Just like a good gardener, our job is to seed these questions in your head. Now let's go to the Johnny Appleseed of LSD, Al Hubbard. Hubbard entered the fray and used his charismatic muscle to introduce LSD into California. So the stage was set for an enthralling drama, one where opinions, ideologies, and personalities, an ego or lack thereof, depending on who you ask, would clash and set off a ticking time bomb. What were those happenings? What is the common thread that ties the Nazi chief scientist, Kurt Blome, a janitor in a psychiatric office who became the best-selling writer and social celebrity, the psychedelic rock band, Mary Pranksters, a Harvard professor, and the CIA? The simple answer? It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Just like what Osmond said, to fathom hell or soar angelic, take a pinch of psychedelic. A pinch of psychedelic was enough to make the world go round in circles, like a snake biting its own tail. Should we dig in? This is Psychedelics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. An enthralling story of an improbable drug class, banished into exile, yet comes back soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders. Let's leave Hoffman, Sando, and the psychiatrists aside for a few minutes. Let's travel to the world before the Second World War to the 1920s. This is a very interesting and, to be honest, a truly peculiar time. When Britain was facing resistance in its colonies, capitalism had received its endorsement from the American people and quickly became the economic and ideological darling of the nation. It was in direct opposition to the socialistic views of Karl Marx and then ultimately Stalin in Russia. 
The societal situation at this point was far from peaceful. J. Edgar Hoover began his meteoric ascendancy. As alcohol and opium became substances for abuse, the United States Constitution was amended and the Bureau of Prohibition was established. A man by the name of Harry Anslinger headed up this governmental agency. The Bureau of Prohibition fought an unsuccessful war against alcohol and saw drunk and disorderly arrests rise by 41%. Drunk driving increased 81%. Violent crime and murder went up 13%. The federal prison population swelled by 366%. And the federal expenditures on penal institutions soared 1000%. Prohibition fueled so much violence and bootlegging that it led to a concession that alcohol should be regulated but not prohibited and the gaze of the bureau of prohibition moved to narcotics it's a deeper story that's worth spending a few minutes of our time as this period unfolds and fuels some of the policies that still impact us today once again it's important to remind ourselves that cocaine heroin and morphine all of which were known to be highly addictive were used widely in the society in the 1800s. Park Davis made a peyote tincture, but it did not get much traction due to the societal issues between white immigrants and Native Americans. The attention then turned to cannabis and marijuana as treatments. The International Opium Convention ratified the prohibition of cannabis and marijuana except for medicinal and scientific use. And US was a strong supporter of this. But within 20 years, upon US insistence, the list of banned substances grew and prohibition increased and the changes were incorporated into the League of Nations treaty. The Bureau of Prohibition needed something to do. So it was Harry Anslinger's idea that if it's not alcohol, there must be something else that in his words stoned people like opium. What was that thing? it was narcotics it also did not help that anslinger had racist views and made narcotics and black population his target history is littered with examples of unjust implementation of policies with a heavy hand on the black community and we see evidence of this targeting even in the policies we encounter today one of the most widely known examples is how billy holiday The jazz musician was hounded by Anslinger even after she got clean. Anslinger and his men framed her and made Holiday so paranoid that she thought Anslinger was going to raid her home at any given moment. How long did Anslinger hold his post? For an astonishing 32 years until 1962. Now, do you get the story? If you think you have the whole picture, I think you're in for a big surprise. The story does not end with Harry Anslinger. So, how does the Bureau of Prohibition survive the repeal of the 18th Amendment? It reinvented itself and became the Drug Enforcement Administration. But what does this have to do with psychedelics? Well, let's peel the layers of the onion, shall we? Let's tug at the two main strands of modern psychedelic history with Christopher Hallam. a historian of psychedelic compounds and a research associate at the Global Drug Policy Observatory at Swansea University and with the Beckley Foundation there was a, there were two main strands there was a medicinal strand and people attempted to incorporate them into psychological therapies and there was a military strand whereby people sought to utilize psychedelic drugs as tools in espionage so they would att- they were looking for a truth drug during the cold war and they thought that LSD might provide them with a truth drug um however the experiments went awry as experiments with LSD will often do it's a, it's quite a an unpredictable drug in many ways gradually this was mainly in america these developments took place but very influential in it 
were some English philosophers and novelists, for example, the most famous of which is Aldous Huxley. Um, there was another guy called Gerald Hurd. And these, these people took LSD and various other psychedelic compounds and they, um, they had what they regarded as ineffable spiritual experiences with them, which revolutionized their lives. Um, through this kind of culture of a few individuals, um, a few therapists then tried, and um, artists, musicians, we had the movement outward of, of psychedelics into what eventually became in the 1960s, famously, the counterculture. And LSD, I believe, was highly influential in, in the counterculture and has in fact changed the world in a number of ways. Um, it's, it's an incredibly potent drug. When, when um, these drugs became popularised, you did have some people having bad experience as well. Um, it wasn't widely understood, as we tend to understand now, the concepts of set and setting, um, which, which will colour, no pun intended, LSD experience. Um, set is your internal psychological and emotional state. Setting is the place, the environment in which you take the drug. And those are the kind of key, or have been argued to be the key factors in shaping the LSD experience. So you had people like the former therapist Timothy Leary who um, proselytised about LSD and attempted to start a global religion based on LSD as a sacrament. You had many musicians taking these drugs and singing about them like Sgt Peppers by the Beatles is redolent with the taste of LSD, unmistakably. And um, LSD permeated into global society um, in, in the West, as we used to call it anyway, the global South. Christopher and many historians referred to the Western society as the global South to refer to the current drug policies as a joke. Let's hear more from Chris Hollum. You had people like in Britain, the Home Secretary began to think that this was a very dangerous drug. And the, the popular press, the red tops, like the Sun and the People and so on, the News of the World, ran loads of absolute horror stories about people thinking they could fly and jumping off buildings and dying and, and staring at the sun until they went blind and so on. A lot of these things turned out in the end to be just mythological in status. So they had a massive influence and in, I think it was 66 in Britain, LSD was brought under legislation to control its use supposedly but it didn't control its use it continued to um, be very widely used um, until other drugs kind of took its place for various cultural reasons fashions and youth cultures and so on and then we had um, MDMA in the 90s um, which was a kind of mini 60s in many ways. People thinking they could fly and jump off of buildings? No person in their right mind would do that. Well, the propaganda messaging hasn't changed much today. I saw the very same after school special in the 80s. Or did people really fly out of the window? If so, why? There is a documented case of an LSD related 13th floor free fall, but you have to be a bit patient to find out about that one. Let's rewind back to the mid-1950s and a bit of a recap from Episodes 2 and 3. 
Al Hubbard, the Johnny Appleseed of LSD, lobbied Humphrey Osmond and Abram Hoffer to open psychedelic clinics. He saw himself as a psychedelic researcher. Hubbard sought to develop clinics to train other psychiatrists in LSD therapy for treating alcoholism and psychological trauma. But surely it isn't just Hubbard that we need to talk about. He was definitely the early socialite and influencer then, but there is someone else we need to talk about too. Just what is LSD and what does it do? The effect is somewhat like looking through a microscope. Suddenly, uh, when you look through a microscope, you discover that there's an invisible world around you that you hadn't uh, known about before you did it. The same thing is true with a psychedelic drug. Uh, you're aware of processes that are going on inside your own brain. You're aware of the um, exchange of energies that are going on between your sense organs and the energies around them that you weren't aware of before. That was Dr. Timothy Leary, a Harvard professor at the time. Timothy was an interesting character. Depending on who you talk to, you might end up with different conclusions. And much like a Quentin Tarantino movie, the plot thickens. Every person in a Tarantino movie has a choice to make. Is it wrong or is it right? Who decides what's right or wrong? Keep that question in mind as we delve deeper. Timothy, known as Tote, was an only son and was born and raised in Massachusetts. It is said that Timothy's father was an authoritative figure and highly abusive. As a result, his mother took to alcohol and was largely absent. Timothy was taken in by his grandfather, who was a street-smart businessman bordering on being a con man. If you're thinking of the father character's car business in Roald Dahl's Matilda, you may not be that far off. So Timothy got his early indoctrination to questioning authority and order from his grandfather. But young Timothy was a rebel, right from his school days. He was a very bright kid and had many instances of infractions and breaking rules. He enrolled in U.S. Military Academy, but due to his boisterous nature, ended up in a court-martial. He then enrolled himself in university while being drafted as a non-commissioned officer, where he enrolled in the psychology subsection of the Army Specialized Training Program, while also hopping between the University of Alabama, Georgetown, and THE Ohio State University to finish his bachelor's degree. Larry moved on to UC Berkeley to start his doctoral dissertation in clinical psychology. He had an extreme interest in approaching psychology as a physics problem and approached group therapy sessions and defining behaviors of people in a group therapy session, much like how elements behave in a periodic table. Well, if that's interesting, you might want to Google interpersonal circumplex later on. After university, Timothy and his wife had two children and they led successful careers and had what seemed like a happy personal life. But beneath the happy marriage facade lurked trouble. Both Timothy and his wife became extensive users of alcohol and his wife, Mary Ann, committed suicide. Timothy turned to psychedelics. But Leary did not just take to psychedelics all that easily. It might be a massive surprise to many, but Leary was very suspicious of psychedelics. When his friend, who also happened to be a psychologist, Frank Barron, mentioned it, Timothy reportedly said, I don't want to go near that ship, Frank, and you should stay away from it too. Globetrotting Leary, who was also the head of the Kaiser Foundation, happened to have been introduced to his first LSD trip in London. It is unclear who turned Leary on to LSD, but that experience is said to have woken up Leary. He is said to have come to terms with his abusive childhood, alcoholic and largely absent mother, his own breakdown, and the death of his wife. So much like Quana Parker and Peyote, Timothy Leary became a supporter of LSD and the mystical and transcendental experiences he could have with the drug. But how did this innocuous experience that shook up Leary get him labeled as the most dangerous man in America by Nixon? Well, let's just pause this story and I promise to come back to it in a few minutes. First, we need to peel the next layer of the onion and rewind our clocks back to the late 1930s. Remember, we told you about the Nazi scientist Kurt Blom, who was the deputy surgeon general of the Third Reich? Blom was instrumental in setting up many biological warfare experiments, including research on some highly transmissible pathogens and is said to have played an active role in setting up the gas chambers during the Holocaust. In addition, Blom was also instrumental in testing of mescaline 
in prison camps with the hope of discovering a truth serum only to find that the dose prisoners saw their captors with more compassion and the truth drug experiment was shelved by the Nazi army here is where the story gets deeper and darker and a very interesting book helps our understanding mr steven kinzer is a former new york times correspondent and is now a professor and senior fellow at the watson institute for international and public affairs at brown university his book poisoner in chief is a shocking and gut-wrenching documentation of previously unreported events that can only be termed as crimes against humanity here is steven recollecting his motivations for writing this book and why he decided to dig deeper into the central intelligence agency's quest to control the mind mk ultra was the flowering of a deep desire inside the cia to find the secret of mind control for a variety of reasons senior officers at the cia became seized with the idea that the soviets or the chinese or some adversary of us what we used to call communism had discovered the secret therefore once having mistakenly convinced themselves of this it was just a short step for these early cia officers to conclude that any research that we could do no matter how grotesque would simply be a defensive maneuver therefore uh, the cia uh, gave its full endorsement to a project that wound up involving the most extreme and intense experiments on human beings that have ever been conducted by any officer or agency of the US government and it wasn't just that mk ultra as the project was called was the culmination of two earlier projects bluebird and artichoke and another drug history expert mike j from whom we have heard extensively concurs with steven in mike's book on mescaline he recounts that oss office of strategic services the very same agency that employed al habid was watching the nazi scientists movements in fact kurt blom ordered the destruction of all laboratory equipment and was arrested by the allied forces from here kurt blom is said to have negotiated with the americans and the dark alley starts right here and there was a perfect alignment of ideals between kurt blom and the oss which later became the cia here is steven kinzer again MK Ultra was the last iteration of projects that had formerly been known as Bluebird and Artichoke. Now these projects developed uh during the late 1940s and early 1950s as the CIA was just coming into being. In 1951, the CIA hired a chemist Sidney Gottlieb to bring these projects all under a single umbrella and all during the 1950s he took over what became MK Ultra and shaped it into this far-reaching mind control experiment project so how did a serendipitously discovered molecule have a massive role in CIA's pursuit of a truth Kinzer notes that CIA's viewpoint was shaped by one man, the poisoner in chief, Sidney Gottlieb. Sidney Gottlieb is not your prototypical villain. He seems like the least likely candidate for the sinister moniker poisoner in chief. In fact, I can imagine his high school standouts would have been more like most likely to collect stamps or budding environmentalist. Gottlieb was born in New York in 1918 to Hungarian Jewish parents. With a club foot and a stutter, he was somewhat introverted as a young boy. He developed a love of science and graduated with distinction from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. From there, he moved to California where he earned his PhD in chemistry at Caltech. Gottlieb demonstrated an unusual ability to separate his work from his personal beliefs. All throughout his tenure at the CIA, Gottlieb lived a personal life that was seemingly that of an entirely different person. 
He had a wife and children, lived in an austere home with little in the way of modern conveniences or comfort, pursued folk dancing rigorously, and led a worldwide life of service. After hours. Work hours presented an entirely different man. Here was a man whose own family would have likely died at the hands of the Nazis had they not escaped, who had no problem recruiting and employing the same Nazi scientists who developed the mechanisms of genocide. While in the light of day, the U.S. and other governments were searching for, capturing, trying, and punishing Nazi war criminals, they were operating an entirely different program under the cover of darkness. Convinced that the Nazis had identified a drug that allowed them to control people's minds, Gottlieb and his team wanted to get their hands on anything that they knew. To that end, Gottlieb recruited scientists who seemed more likely to end up at Nuremberg than to find themselves on the pathway toward American citizenship. Operation Paperclip was a talent scouting and recruiting program that allowed the U.S. research programs to identify valuable assets in the field of chemistry, electronics, biological and chemical weaponry, rocketry, and more. Individuals with unique talents and skill sets had their files marked with a paperclip to indicate that they were to be given special treatment and a blind eye was to be turned on whatever nefarious activities they had performed as members of the Nazi party. For more than 1,600 Nazi scientists and engineers, their one-way ticket to prison turned into deportations to friendly countries, including the United States, where they could continue their work that they had previously started for the Third Reich. Kurt Blome, the Nazi scientist responsible for all biological warfare research, sponsored by the Wehrmacht and the SS, benefited from the Operation Paperclip and its successor programs. He was eventually employed by the U.S. Army. His cooperation with MKUltra and other programs significantly advanced Gottlieb's progress. He certainly gives a different meaning to the saying, if you can't beat him, join him. Americans from almost any era get a bit squeamish about torture. I think there was an acceptable level of comfort with the idea during the Cold War. As long as the torture was done in the name of keeping American ideals and citizens safe. They didn't want to know about it, but they certainly weren't keen on such tactics being used on American soil. In order to keep unsavory activities at arm's length, government scientists employed researchers like Kurt Blom and Henry Beecher. Guess where you've heard of the name Henry Beecher? Let me remind you. Henry Beecher's name figures on the famed Beecher Prize that honors Harvard medical students for demonstrating outstanding medical ethics. If you're wondering what a strange irony, I must say, I share that with you. Bloom and Beecher worked for the CIA at a place called Villa Schuster. Such consulting engagements were documented as exchanges of ideas. Villa Schuster, now named Haus Waldorf, is an estate in Kronberg near Frankfurt in Germany. It is in close proximity to Camp King, a U.S. interrogation center. Uh, when I was researching this book, Poisoner in Chief, uh, it was quite a, a revelation to me to come to this place, Villa Schuster, which I think may have been the very first CIA secret prison. And uh, the owner, who was very genial, took me down into the basement and he showed me his storerooms and said, these are the cells where the CIA people and their Nazi partners were carrying out experiments that were only continuations of the experiments that they had been carrying out just down the road in the concentration camps only a few years earlier. Now these doctors working for the CIA. The grand scale of Villa Schuster was ideal for covert operations. A parlor with high ceilings, a massive fireplace, and generous areas for dining and socializing was sandwiched between two upper floors, offering residence to a dozen bedrooms, allocated for scientists and visiting government personnel, and a basement with a maze of brick storerooms doubling as cells. The remote location at the end of Waldorf Lane provided the privacy necessary for the villa's use as a black site all the while maintaining the appearance of a country estate visited 
by successful and important members of German and foreign society. In the first place, on the matter of medical ethics, I believe that uh, Gottlieb and the people whom he worked believed that they were operating in a realm outside ethics. They believed that given the urgency of the national security challenge they believed they faced, the loss of a few lives or even a few hundred lives, destruction of human lives would be a very small price to pay. And they exempted themselves from the Nuremberg Code, which was only a few years old, and all other medical restrictions uh, that would have applied in a normal ethical environment. Second is the question of Gottlieb as a scientist. Actually, he was a terrible scientist. He did not follow any rigorous protocols. Everything was kind of a shot in the dark. He would try to mix uh, sensory deprivation with hypnotism and then pull people from hyperactivity uh, stimulated by amphetamines into a comatose state and then try to give them some other drug while they were in the transition phase. Just throw everything out there and see what might work. Very few protocols were kept. To call the operators of MKUltra scientists is perhaps a little like calling a crack dealer a neighborhood pharmacist. Subjects were experimented upon without anything close to informed consent. Experiments frequently and repeatedly crossed the line from science to torture. Documentation was discouraged, and what little documentation was made was written in code, was later destroyed by Gottlieb and his boss. Much of the little information we do have on MKUltra is the result of carefully reconstructed forensic accounts, supported by expense reports and personal testimony. While officers involved in MKUltra were sworn to secrecy to the grave and beyond, Kinzer reports that several people have reached out to him after the 2019 publication of Poisoner in Chief. They reported to him that they believed a family member had been a victim of the program. By Kinzer's estimation, many of those stories fit the M.O. and are likely to be true. Now, there was one interesting case of a person who was a subject in a prison experiment uh, who later did figure out what had happened to him. And this was a guy who later became a kind of notorious criminal that was Whitey Bulger, the famous gangster from Boston. So when Whitey Bulger was just a street thug in Boston. He was arrested in his 20s and sent to the state penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. There a doctor named Carl Pfeiffer, who was a contractor for MKUltra, he was working for Sidney Godley, was carrying out LSD experiments. Um, Gottlieb apparently wanted to know what would be the effect of dosages over a long sustained period. Um, Prisoners were recruited, among them Whitey Bulger, and told not only that they would get favorable treatment, but that they would be contributing to research aimed at finding a cure for schizophrenia. At one point, Bulger, by his own account, begged to be taken out of this experiment. It was too overwhelming for him. He couldn't sleep. He was seeing wild delusions because he was given LSD every single day for months. Uh, but he said that Dr. Pfeiffer kept saying, you're one of our best subjects. We're almost approaching a cure. You have to keep going. Years later, 20 years later, Whitey Bulger, now a gang boss in Boston, reads about MK Ultra, And he figures out that's the same Dr. Pfeiffer. And he told the members of his gang in Boston, I'm going to go to Atlanta. I'm going to find that guy and I'm going to kill him. Now, he didn't do that, but it shows you that at least one person put it all together and had emotions of that intensity. So MK Ultra dosed prison inmates, and already we heard Stephen Kinzer mention the experience of Whitey Bulger, a Bostonian and a gangster. But just when you think the story hits the height of gore, it only gets more savage. There are some indications of what these experiments might have been like. In particular, I can cite one. We have a report of an experiment that was carried out in a federal prison in Lexington, Kentucky. 
Gottlieb loved prison experiments because, of course, the prisoners are completely reliant on their wardens and uh, cannot be uh, forced to sign anything like uh, uh, informed consent, regardless of official rules under, at those times. So, uh, in this experiment, uh, the, war, the prison doctor who was working with Gottlieb segregated seven African-American inmates and fed them what were described in the memo as triple and quadruple doses of LSD every day for 77 days. These African-American inmates had no idea what they were being given or what was happening to them. As I read about this, I began wondering, what happened to those men? We, we never knew their names. I wonder, did they ever come to an understanding of what was done to them? I'm sure you've seen enough movies, read any number of books, and probably heard about the civic duty of revolution if the government turns against its own citizens. Once again, ask yourself the question, was this right or was it wrong? Keep that answer in mind as we press on. Here is Kinzer again. One of the uh, threads that runs through Gottlieb's experiments is uh, the desire to use subjects who will not have avenues to complain or will not be taken seriously if they complain. That's why he employed prostitutes to dose their clients with LSD because he figured those people won't be able to complain. And he did it in an even more extreme way abroad using what he called expendables. So these were people who would be captured war prisoners or suspected enemy agents or refugees who turned up with no visible connections and they could be experimented to death. In, a same, in the same way, probably uh, Gottlieb and the prison doctor might have seen these African-American inmates as uh, the ones least likely to complain or even recognize what had happened to them. And uh, I'm only speculating based on the, uh, on the memo, but it did mention that they were African-American. And I, uh, I wonder maybe if that was a code for saying, don't worry too much about them. They're not really like us. MKUltra was a dark program, even by CIA standards. As a result, very few people within the CIA were privy to its existence, let alone its scope and goals. Even fewer people had all of the pieces of the puzzle. Of course, there were people who participated in and even made significant contributions to the gruesome advances made through MKUltra. It was not unusual for subjects, human and animal, to die during drug experiments. We know of one instance where a scientist's conscience finally got the better of him. Well, first of all, you're quite right that uh, LSD experiments under MKUltra ran the gamut from fully voluntary to horrifically coercive. Uh, so Gottlieb had no hesitation about dosing people uh, without their knowledge or against their will. Uh, the Frank Olson case is one of the great enduring mysteries of the MKUltra project. Uh, this was the most secret project at the CIA. Uh, if anybody who understood what MKUltra was had been allowed to speak publicly, that revelation would have been devastating. It could have destroyed the CIA and it would have undermined the United States position in the world uh, in unpredictable ways. It, it was not named MKUltra for nothing. It was the ultra secret, and I was understood by the senior officers at the CIA to be this. After all, if you could find a way to control the minds of other human beings, then the prize would be nothing less than global mastery. So going that far, they were right. They just were uh, ex expecting that they actually would be able to find it. That was the, the one the little problem in their, in their theory. So Frank Olson was one of the very small number of chemists who was in the inner circle of MKUltra. Uh, and his specialty was aerosols. He was uh, transforming liquid poisons into aerosol poisons. Uh, he carried out experiments in which if he arrived back at work the next morning and all the monkeys were dead, that would be considered a success. 
I think this kind of got to him after a while. And uh, during the summer of 1953, he was in Britain, apparently watching uh, dope people being dosed with these uh, toxins that he had developed. He traveled around in Europe, and at least in one case, he apparently saw somebody die under one of the poisons that he had uh, developed. In any case, he developed um, second thoughts about the project. And he told his superiors that he wanted to quit. Not only did he want to leave MK Ultra, but he wanted to leave the CIA. We now know that he actually asked one of his friends, do you know a good journalist? As soon as it became clear to uh, the other people around him, and particularly to Sidney Gottlieb, uh, the director of MKUltra, that uh, one of the people in the inner core didn't seem reliable anymore, uh, that was a matter of intense concern. It wasn't just expendables that were unwittingly dosed during MKUltra. Frank Olson attended a private meeting of some of the program's top officials. During the meeting, he was surreptitiously dosed with LSD by none other than Gottlieb himself. Needless to say, it was not a good trip. Even after the drug wore off, Olsen was a changed man. In addition to the crisis of conscience he was experiencing over his work, he felt that he could no longer trust his own mind. Olsen confided some of his fears and doubts to his wife, although he could never reveal details to her. And doing so would mean admitting his role in despicable experiments. He displayed a restlessness and self-doubt that could not be ignored. He expressed a strong desire to resign from his work with the CIA, both to his wife and to his own boss, Colonel Rouet. MKUltra leaders were concerned, not so much about Olsen's well-being, but about what he might divulge. John Stubbs, an officer at Fort Detrick, escorted Olsen home and convinced Olsen and his wife Alice that he and his colleagues would get him the help he needed. They convinced him to fly to Maryland, to New York, to see a doctor who would certainly be able to help. Olsen was accompanied by his boss, Colonel Rouet, and Robert Lashbrook, Sidney Gottlieb's deputy. The doctor, Harold Abramson, was affiliated with the CIA and had previously worked with Olsen on an aerosolization project. The bottom line, Olsen was a risk to the program. At 2 a.m. on Saturday, November 28, 1953, Frank Olsen fell to his death from the 13th floor room at Hotel Stadler. The impact of the fall left Olsen clinging to life with just a few breaths left in his lungs. The manager of the hotel was at Olsen's side when he died and reported that he tried to mumble something. Lashbrook, Olsen's CIA babysitter and Gottlieb spy, was rooming with Olsen at the hotel. When police located him, Lashbrook was sitting on the hotel room toilet. The circumstances surrounding Olsen's death are suspect to say the least. Lashbrook reports hearing very little and noticing even less. The hotel switchboard operator made a statement to the police that she had connected a call from Olsen and Lashbrook's room to none other than Dr. Harold Abramson. Perhaps being professionally curious, the operator remained on the line for the entire call. She reports that the voice of the hotel guest said, Well, he's gone. And the reply was, Well, that's too bad. The logistics of Olsen's alleged suicide doesn't add up. Olsen was wearing only his underwear when he died. That perhaps is a little odd, but there are any number of reasons that could explain his final wardrobe choices. But what is truly odd was the obstacle course Olsen had to run in order to make it through the window. He would have had to start at one end of the room, avoid two beds and jump through not only a closed window, but a drawn shade and close curtains too. There is no telling what goes through the mind of a person on the brink of a suicide, but raising the shade, drawing the curtains and opening the window might be at the top of the list. 
For years, the government stuck to the suicide story. It wasn't until 1975, nearly 25 years after Olson's death, that US government admitted its role in Olson's undoing. After the Rockefeller Commission report came out, it was learned that Olson was unwittingly dosed by CIA core workers just nine days before his death. The Olson family received apologies from President Ford and CIA Director William Colby, neither of whom held their respective positions at the time of Olson's death. The family received a paltry $750,000 as an out-of-court settlement. It was this settlement that prevented Eric Olson, Frank's son, from successfully suing the CIA in 2012 for previously undisclosed documentation. While the judge did dismiss the case, he noted for the record, and I quote, While the court must limit its analysis to the four corners of the complaint, the skeptical reader may wish to know that public record supports many of these allegations, far-fetched as they may sound. And what exactly were those allegations? Based on a second autopsy performed in 1994, there was no evidence of any cuts or abrasions on the corpse, as would have been expected had he dived through a glass window. The second autopsy also revealed that there was a hematoma on the left side of Olson's head, as well as a trauma to his chest. It was surmised that these injuries occurred before the fall and not as a result of it. The conclusion? Rankly and starkly suggestive of homicide. This is one of the most poignant parts of the MK Ultra story. At the very end, after a decade of destroying unknown numbers of lives, Sidney Gottlieb concluded actually the whole mind control idea is a myth. And he used the phrase too unpredictable to describe LSD. It, that sometimes it made people very talkative, sometimes it had the opposite result, and uh, you just can't harness it for coercive purposes. It's not reliable enough. Um, and he concluded further that not just is LSD not an effective mind control tool, but there's no such thing as mind control. You cannot make a person commit a murder, for example, through outside means if that person is fundamentally opposed to committing murder. So all those Sherlock Holmes stories and Edgar Allan Poe stories and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari movies and everything actually was all a myth. So the efforts of MK Ultra continued for a few more years into the early 1970s. During the 1960s Cuban Missile Crisis, it is said that Gottlieb had proposed a plan to spray Fidel Castro's television studio with LSD and to saturate his shoes with thallium, the radioactive element, until his beard fell out. Despite all the efforts that he undertook for mind control, in ridiculously horrible fashion, Gottlieb retired from the CIA in 1972. Under the direction of the CIA head Richard Helms, Gottlieb was said to have destroyed close to seven crates worth of MK Ultra paperwork pertaining to the clinical work, and only a few remained. It was only when John Marks, the author of The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, filed a request under the Freedom of Information Act to gain access to these documents that some of the truth came to light. That was some seriously dark stuff. It is clear that LSD experiments run by the CIA didn't pan out as they had thought they might, and as a result, they abandoned it. They had dug themselves quite a deep hole, and could that have been the reason for LSD to be banned? Are we missing anything? <laughs> of course we are. It's the 1960s counterculture. What about it? One of the key missing pieces in the story that we have heard so far is how LSD came to be the poster child for the 1960s counterculture. Now you know where the 10,000 doses ordered by Al Hubbard landed. Here is Kinzer again. But there's a whole other aspect to his LSD work that I think is probably the least expected result of his work. One of the things that he wanted to do was see how LSD uh, would uh, work on people who were fully knowledgeable and that were volunteers in a normal clinical and medical uh, setting. So uh, he sent 
the CIA didn't have the ability to carry out these tests. So Gottlieb set up a couple of bogus medical foundations that were actually CIA fronts. These foundations then contacted hospitals and clinics around the United States and told them very explicitly, we're experimenting with LSD, that psychoactive drug that was invented in the 1940s by Albert Hoffman. We're going to send you uh, a supply of it. You will advertise uh, for volunteers. You will pay them with money we will give you. You administer it and then uh, we pay you for this and you just write reports of what happened. So almost overnight, an entire market grew up from hospitals that wanted to take advantage of this new source of funding. And who were among the very first volunteers to come in and ask to try this new drug? It is true even today. While cutting-edge research happens where the money is, the alternate is also true. One that most academics will not be shy of admitting. The academics go where the money is. So if the CIA had set up medical foundations testing LSD, all of which appeared reputable to the onlooker, why the hell not was the thinking. At this point, the whole thing requires reflection of a really gray area. It's easy to say with the benefit of hindsight, but at the time in the late 1950s and into the 1960s, should the researchers have paused and thought for a second about what the source of money is? Think about it as you listen on. So one such testing facility was in California in Palo Alto at the Veterans Affairs Hospital. Kent Kesey was a volunteer in the studies funded by the CIA and had taken both mescaline and LSD multiple times to supplement his income while taking courses at Stanford. Kesey didn't just stop there. He also moonlighted as the janitor at the VA. In fact, that's how he even got to be a subject in the CIA study in the first place. Here's the author in his own words. It all started in 1960 at a psychiatric hospital south of San Francisco. Kesey, then a student at Stanford University, took part in a military experiment on the effects of mind-altering drugs. After a number of those students came out with a wild look in their eye, they said, close up that room and don't let anybody else go back in that room. And that's when I found that my key fit the doctor's office. Well, this is the place where the events that led to the defining of what psychedelic means plays out. Remember what Osman wrote to Aldous Huxley? To fathom hell or soar angelic, take a pinch of psychedelic? So please pinch yourself and let's see what happened from this janitor's over-exuberance. Here is Kinzer again. So almost overnight, an entire market grew up from hospitals that wanted to take advantage of this new source of funding. And who were among the very first volunteers to come in and ask to try this new drug? One of them was Allen Ginsberg, who went on to become the great uh, poet, poetic uh, promoter of LSD. One was Robert Hunter, the lyricist for The Grateful Dead. Another was Ken Kesey, who wrote that classic book, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. All of these people went home immediately and said, you got to try this drug. And then Ken Kesey even got a job in the hospital. As he writes uh, later on, uh, he did that not to gather material for his book, but because he wanted to steal the LSD so he could bring it home and have parties uh, with his friends. In this way, Sidney Gottlieb is the unwitting godfather of the LSD counterculture in the United States. And of course, the irony is that the drug that he hoped would give the CIA the tool to control the world wound up fueling a generational rebellion that was aimed at destroying everything the CIA stands for. The Merry Pranksters, the band that Kesey blooded after his cult success of the book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, is history. Almost every major event in California after this in California and the world over, actually, especially in Europe and specifically in England, reeked of psychedelic influence. And it wasn't just the merry pranksters and the hippies that Keys cultivated. There was one more person who added fuel to the fire. Remember Timothy Leary? At this point, Timothy Leary was a lecturer at Harvard University. As alluded to before, in the early 1950s, when Huxley had taken mescaline and was singing its praise, Leary was not a fan of psychedelics. Until one trip to Mexico 
changed all of that. Leary's tool of choice was LSD that he was exposed to much later on when in England and another synthesized substance derived from mushrooms. The instigator for that trip that turned Leary on to psychedelics was from a person called as Gordon Wasson. Wasson and his wife had some interest in foraging for wild mushrooms while on honeymoon in the Catskill Mountains of New York. They took some fascination to mushrooms. In 1957, while visiting Mexico for holiday, Gordon Wasson befriended a local curandera, Marina Sabina, who was being a kind host and let the couple sit in on their healing ceremony. What would follow would land Maria Sabina in a spot of bother. Gordon Wasson arrives back in the United States with his bravado as the vice president of public relations of J.P. Morgan and muscles his way to publishing an article for Life magazine. I'm looking at the Life magazine cover published on 13th of May, 1957. It has a picture of a man who looks like a funny brother of Alfred Hitchcock peering out from behind a pot of an indoor palm tree and a black collard banner in the top right that says Great Adventures, the discovery of mushrooms that cause strange visions. Wasson wrote up an article and shipped it to the editor about how wonderful the visions were with these mushrooms that was provided by Eva Mendes, a pseudonym that he used for the curandera Maria Sabina. In fact, Wasson took a picture of Maria Sabina with the mushrooms and Maria is said to have only allowed him to take this picture if Wasson was going to keep this private. But what did Wasson do? He published it, of course, since his bragging was more important than the request of the very person who allowed him into the ceremony and let him take pictures. And can we also say that we can leave it to the Americans to inject some oomph into the mushrooms by calling it magic mushrooms? God knows what the word magic is said to have meant, but it definitely didn't help the hysteria around the psychedelic substances. The article brought hundreds and thousands of visitors to the remote village in Oaxaca. The community thought Maria Sabina had sold out the soul of the region to the Western world as more Americans and Westerners flocked to this region. The list included many, and most notable were two people. First is the man who gave the Eureka moment a cult status for these substances, Albert Hoffman. Hoffman is said to have made a trip and brought back a bunch of mushrooms and successfully synthesized the pro-drug psilocybin. And what does Sando do? Market it, of course, for a specific disease indication. Nah, we will figure that out as time goes on, or so they thought. Another person who made the journey was Timothy Leary. Leary was so fascinated by the experience that in a couple of years he undertook two of the most provocative experiments that would determine his legacy. First was the Concord Prison Experiment, where the clinical psychologist Timothy Leary, along with his academic colleague Richard Alpert, tried dosing inmates of the prison with psilocybin. They were planning to study outcomes of recidivism in antisocial behaviors. Timothy Leary was one of the first proponents of the idea that if psychedelic drugs were tested in the right environment, which we can call as the aesthetic setting, in a subject who has baggage that predisposed him to a certain type of behavior, the set. Therefore, coining the terminology set and setting for the use of psychedelics. Leary argued that psilocybin triggered a mystical experience that enabled them to examine their behavior during self-reflection. It seemed to have 60% efficacy in the 32 subjects that Timothy Leary is said to have treated. Buoyed on by his success, Leary tried to do a bigger experiment that seemed to have failed and caught the attention of those in the scientific and political communities. The efficacy of the next stage of testing is said to have dropped to 20%, based on some accounts, and the scientific community was largely unhappy at the degree and type of follow-up. But Leary's ego took over and his evangelism of the idea and being too much in love with that idea was the start of his downfall. The root of all this was in the idea of Leary that he needed to ingest these substances along with his subjects to give himself the empathy, but also to experience the same as what his patients felt. Once again, we want you to mull that over. Should a physician dose himself and give himself a trip every time he saw a patient? 
you would have expected some of his academic friends to have sided with Timothy Leary. But that was far from the case, and it so happened that Leary didn't have any academic friends either. One of his psychiatrist friends said, and I quote, Timothy Leary certainly popularized the notion inside a lot of people to experiment with LSD, but he really did not give fair information. He was talking about LSD, you know, as if it was a substance that made you sing songs of liberation. He didn't tell people about the dangers that before you go to heaven, you might go to hell. Or if you don't do it right, you might just stay there. The careful analysis of the Concord Prison Experiment was published 34 years after the experiments itself in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs by Rick Doblin, who went on to found a charity organization called MAPS to further psychedelic drug therapy. Doblin's conclusion based on the review and interview of 21 of the 32 patients that were treated by Leary was the following. The results of the follow-up study indicate that the published claims of a treatment effect was erroneous. This follow-up study supports the emphasis in the original reports on the necessity of embedding psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy with inmates within a comprehensive treatment plan that includes post-release non-drug group support programs. Despite substantial efforts by the experimental team to provide post-release support, these services were not sufficiently available to the subjects in the study. This Concord prison experiment ran from 1960 to 1963. And around the same time, Leary and his Harvard colleague, Richard Alpert, started on the Harvard Psilocybin Project, where the real trouble started. Leary, using his influence, is said to have coerced his students to have taken psilocybin and act as subjects in the clinical studies so that he could understand what psilocybin was doing and how beneficial it would be, much like an experimental medicine study in today's world. But Leary's coercion took an ugly turn when two of the students were dosed with psilocybin and ended up in the hospital with psychosis. Harvard, which had a policy of not questioning its faculty and providing them with creative freedom, did demand that the undergraduate students should not be a part of the project. Why is it restricted only to graduate students? And what factors were taken into account to come to this decision? It's not entirely clear, but definitely this was on shaky ground on both sides. Finally, as news emerged that Leary and Alpert recruited undergraduates into the study, Harvard dismissed its blazing faculty member. Leary then used his influence to run psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy with a philanthropic donation and got hold of a mansion in Millbrook, New York. Here things took another ugly turn from psilocybin research being a scientific pursuit to slowly turning into a party-oriented pleasure use. Leary also became the figurehead of the 1960s counterculture and urged people to turn on, tune in, and drop out. This raised many eyebrows, and as the 60s rolled on, Timothy Leary's exuberant enthusiasm met the failed experimentation and failures of the CIA to LSD and psilocybin ingesters being part of a hippie movement and questioning authority, all led to a panic beyond measure. All of this came to a pinnacle when the paranoid Nixon labeled him as the high priest of LSD. It was a massive hit for someone as intelligent as Leary, who spoke of some amazing concepts such as set and setting to be labeled as the most dangerous man in America. With that language, I'm not surprised that the high priest of LSD got into some serious trouble. Here is another Republican, the 1967 gubernatorial candidate in California, Ronald Reagan, talking about LSD. Well, I'm terribly frightened by the problem with LSD. Uh, I think there's been a great deal of misinformation uh, by those who seem to see no harm in it. But as a parent and as a citizen, and certainly now in this position, uh, I am greatly concerned. Here is a, a colorless, uh, odorless, tasteless drug, hallucinatory drug, that is uh, easily produced, so therefore difficult to control. And the misinformation from those who should know better is that uh, it isn't harmful, uh, that it sort of opens up the mind, that it's, uh, we were even seeing some of our young people told it's a worthwhile experiment, 
uh, for them to indulge in this. But as nearly as we can learn, and from the most reputable of medical sources, it is a drug in which there is no knowledge about the eventual harmful results. We know that uh, uh, one individual can apparently escape with no problem. Others immediately have a great problem. There is a residual effect that this can come back with uh, what might be permanent brain damage months after even just a single use of it. And I think it is shocking that anyone uh, of any authority would today try to uh, make young people believe that they can with, uh, uh, with no risk to themselves whatsoever play around with this very dangerous drug. That I think our only hope lies in a concerted effort of education uh, so that young people will be aware that uh, uh, there is nothing smart, there is nothing uh, uh, grown up or sophisticated in taking an LSD trip at all. They're just being complete fools. Anyone that would engage in this or indulge in this is just a plain fool. This is how the tiger had its fangs removed. LSD went from one that was mystical, one that fed to the paranoia, largely due to misuse and glorification of its use for pleasure, all of which had negligible scientific credibility. So it's not surprising that LSD ended up on the ban along with psilocybin and other substances. But how did the psychedelic substances make a comeback? The scars were so deep that it would take another 20 years before anything appreciable would happen. Well, as with any innovation, it is a process of toil, blood, sweat and tears. We have to find out about that, don't we? You've been listening to Psychedelics. Psychedelics is a Scraps original podcast produced and narrated by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Scraps is a volunteer-run organization created by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists and innovators as a service to the world. Select research for this podcast was performed by Sharina Rice. The producers thank Clara Bertinshaw for her invaluable input. Multimedia services was provided by Dr. Romeo Ratch. The scripts were written and edited by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Financial support to cover the production costs was from Cyber Inc. and a kind donor BB. Recordings were done at Caprino Studios in the UK and Slightly Red Studio in San Francisco. Swaminathan Tirunyana Samandam performed the mixing and mastering. All recordings including interviews are properties of the producers and should not be reproduced without permission. The show notes, transcripts and useful links pertaining to the episode are located at the podcast website, psychedelics.com. <laughs>